Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The top story globally this week continues to be the coronavirus out of Wuhan, China. The World Health Organization has now declared the outbreak a global emergency after the number of cases spiked more than tenfold in a week. The WHO defines an international emergency as an extraordinary event that constitutes a risk to other countries and requires a coordinated international response. To date, China has reported more than 7,800 cases, including 170 deaths, and there's 18 other countries that have since reported cases. The WHO Director General said that their greatest concern is that the potential for this virus to spread to countries with weaker health systems, which are ill-prepared to deal with it. And declaring these things a global emergency typically brings greater money and resources so that governments can try to contain this. This is all happening as the U.S. reported its first case of a person-to-person spread of the coronavirus. There was a man in the United States who was married to a 60-year-old Chicago woman who got sick from the virus after she returned from a trip to Wuhan. He is now infected. There was also a case in South Korea where a 56-year-old man had contact with a patient who was diagnosed with the new virus, and then he got it. So this thing is starting to spread from person to person. And the area in Wuhan, China, is on lockdown right now. Earlier this week, 201 U.S. citizens were evacuated from the coronavirus zone there. A plane left China, it stopped in Alaska, and then made its way to the March Air Reserve Base in California. The passengers there were screened multiple times on their way and will be quarantined for 72 hours, then monitored for about 14 days. For more on these passengers coming to the United States, we spoke to Corbin Carson. He's a reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles. About a thousand uh, Americans live in Wuhan, is what we've seen so far. That's out of a population of 11 million in that city. So what we're hearing so far is the State Department ordered this group of U.S. consulate employees, their families, and I think a few private U.S. citizens out Uh, maybe several days ago. And health officials say the group of passengers were screened several times throughout the flight process before landing this morning at March Air Reserve Base in Riverside County. The group of 201 people, again, is made up of those uh, employees, their families, their teenagers, some toddlers. The CDC says the group was screened before leaving China, screened and monitored on the plane heading to Alaska, screened again in Alaska, and they are in the process of getting screened again at the base. For the next 72 hours, the group will undergo intensive screening, which includes temperature checks every 12 hours, as well as nasal swabs and blood tests that will be sent to CDC labs. Then the group will be monitored for the next 14 days until what's believed to be the end of the incubation period for the virus. Now, this hold is voluntary, and there was quite a bit of questioning on this part because obviously everyone's concerned this thing has exploded the disease has now affected almost 6,000 people more than 130 people have been killed although all those people are in china but from what i understand these are government workers who are happy to be back in america and are also they want to be sure they don't have the coronavirus themselves that their kids don't have the coronavirus and that if they or their family did that they don't spread that virus to anyone here in america 
So we're told the passengers have no intention of leaving before at least the first 72 hours, and some may stay at the base the entire two weeks. But any that do decide to leave will be reported to local health officials wherever it is they're going. Their travel arrangements will be discussed for any threat to the public for the remainder of this two-week period. But if someone was like, hey, I'm leaving, they can. But doctors were like, however, they would make this decision in the middle of a military base. Then officials would have time to discuss that person's status. If there's any risk to the public, the officials would have the power to impose an individual quarantine on that person or family. But again, it does not appear at this point, at least from what I'm told, that anyone's trying to leave. Yeah. And to be clear, all these Americans that did come over, they weren't sick to begin with. They weren't being evacuated because they were sick. These were healthy individuals that just wanted to get out of the city because the city's on lockdown now. And, you know, they don't want to stay there. And I'm just looking at social media locally here. A lot of people are concerned saying, you know, how can these people be allowed to leave and everything? You're at Riverside University Health Medical Center where, uh, you know, obviously they're helping out with all this stuff. What have officials said how they're tackling this and are they ready in case somebody does pop up with it? They are obviously ready. They have the entire local, county, federal. We heard from everybody as far as how to attack this public concern. But what they wanted to remind people is these are U.S. citizens who are in this emergency zone. They were ordered back. They were supposed to go to Ontario Airport. That was the original plan. That Ontario Airport is the repatriation center for the West Coast that's set up with procedures just for this instant, people in dangerous areas flying back here, they would have been kept quarantined. The Ontario airport had brought in water and bathrooms and stuff like that for the, the quarantine process. But late last night, that was shifted over to the base for even more concern. And mainly what we're told, comfort for these 201 U.S. citizens while they undergo this intensive screening for the first 72 hours and the final health monitoring beyond that for the 14 days. But again, the concern that many people feel is warranted. This this disease is spreading rapidly. Experts I've heard are still trying to get a full idea of what this disease is. They're treating it in the same fashion as they would the MERS and SARS outbreaks where they would find anyone that's been in contact with people. They're questioning people. They're doing temperature checks and that sort of thing. So they're saying, hey, look, we are completely on top of this and they emphasize that the risk to the public remains low. And it's a tricky thing. It's a novel coronavirus. It's the new one that they've discovered. But by all accounts, it is less severe than what SARS and MERS was, although it's in the same family, you know, and they treat it the same way. And I know uh, officials are looking at making some type of vaccine and they're in development for all that stuff. But it takes time and then they still need to find out the source of it also. So there's still a lot to go through and learn. But for now, these American citizens are back. They're quarantined. They're going to go through the process. And as you mentioned, the risk is low right now. Just one great moment, I guess, you know, when they arrived in Alaska and, you know, you're touching down in the plane, they say, welcome to the United States. The reports were that everybody on the plane started cheering at that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine the same there and the same here. I mean, can you imagine being over there? And mind you, these are employees. They weren't vacationing. They don't live there. They're not doing business or private. They were on a mission of sorts for the U.S. government, for us, the American people. So now they're being called back. So, of course, they're happy to be home where they can feel that they're being treated with the best medical care that, you know, America has to offer. Corbin Carson, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir.
This next type of story always fascinates me. Border authorities have just announced that they discovered the longest ever smuggling tunnel at the U.S.-Mexico border. It runs 4,309 feet between Tijuana and San Diego. Authorities said that it was a sophisticated tunnel 70 feet below the surface, complete with electrical lighting, forced air, and a rail system. For more on this story, we spoke to Steve Gregory. He's a reporter for KFI News who's been covering stories about the border and these tunnels for many, many years. We're talking about 4,309 feet long. That's eight-tenths of a mile, three-quarters of a mile, if you will. It is a long tunnel. And get this, it is 70 feet below the surface of the ground, and the height of the tunnel averages about five and a half feet high and two feet wide. Let that sink in for a second, because now imagine you're the person that has to go in there and go for about almost a mile. I mean, it's like five football fields long. That's how far it is. And authorities actually discovered it, and we're thinking it came from a tip. They will not confirm how they got it, but most typically these tunnels are discovered because of confidential informants. So they discovered this back in August of last year, and they found it on the northeast corner, the entrance to it, on the northeast corner of the Tijuana International Airport. And when they got down inside of there, they realized this thing was pretty long. So they called in the team of surveyors and a bunch of tunnel experts, and they had sonar mapping. And then it took them months to actually map this thing out because they had no idea what they were climbing into and how far it went. Right. I mean, you don't know if people are down there. Uh, the authorities have released video and pictures of this. I mean, it looks like a horror video game almost. I mean, there's water on the floors, there's long, dark tunnels, but it did have solar-powered lighting, I read. It had ventilation. It had an elevator at the entrance. I mean, this is some sophisticated stuff. And they get more and more sophisticated. The soil there is what makes it so attractive for tunnels because the soil is primarily clay with rock mixed in. So it's almost a natural concrete, if you will. They don't have to build support beams inside of these tunnels because that clay is pretty sturdy. So it's easy for them to get in there and they can do it in a faster amount of time, though it's harder to dig the clay, but it's a more robust and more stable environment down there. So when they get down in there, there are electrical panels, which continue to light the path along the way, also to use for drainage pumps, some pumps, because a lot of that tunnel is actually down into the water table. So there's constant water in there. So in order to bypass that, they have to put in these pumps, similar to what you would have in some sort of a, in plumbing, like in the bottom of a boat or something like that, a sump pump to keep the thing drained constantly. So yeah, they had to have power down in there and oxygen too. There was forced air all throughout that tunnel. And the tunnel started, as I mentioned, on the Tijuana side, and it went north to the U.S. border. And then it kind of veered off to the right. One fork of it went to the right and stopped just across the border into the U.S., about 3,000 feet inside the U.S. line. Now, the end of that was packed with sandbags. And they're not clear if that was a usable entrance or exit at one point. So they're not able to tell. And then the left fork went a little further west into the U.S., but it just hit a dead end. What's really creepy is they have no idea how long that tunnel's been there and when it was built. And they have no indication when it possibly could have been used last. Because going back to some of the pictures and videos they released, there was old clothing left behind, trash, things like that. They couldn't tell when it might have been used last. 
they suspect that it was a narco tunnel. So this thing was a very, as you mentioned, sophisticated setup. It had a rail and cart system. So imagine like a mining cart on a rail system where it would go down in there. And then sometimes these are set up to where someone on the other end will pull that cart. So when the cart is loaded, they'll radio over and say, okay, go ahead and start pulling. And they'll just literally pull from the other side and pull these carts of drugs through. And I'm sure that experts are going to get in there and they're going to be able to tell maybe by any kind of rust or like the fraying of any kind of electrical lines or something, you know, any kind of erosion from the water. They'll probably get a pretty good sense of how long like the water's been pooling or how long the rust has been there. They're going to get a pretty good sense. They haven't been able to really study a lot of that yet, even though it was discovered in August. They've been more focused on mapping it out properly and getting an idea of how long it actually is. The other thing they're not telling us is who they think the tunnel belongs to or who dug it. But it it was discovered in an area that was kind of a stronghold from the Sinaloa cartel. And I guess there's no arrest been made in this and they didn't find any drugs inside there. But this is a kind of an area typical to that cartel and something that they've done before. They've shown the capabilities to do this before. El Chapo, I mean, the tunnels were something that he was mighty proud of, actually. And when I had been asked about it before, he said, well, who do you think did it? And I said, it only looks like the work of the Sinaloa cartel because they're one of the more well-funded cartels. And they are the ones that employ all of these ditch diggers and all these you know, engineers. But again, we keep throwing that word sophisticated around. It really is because they have the foresight to put the electrical in there, the pumps and the solar power and all of that. So these are no dummies by no stretch. They've got engineers that are on the payroll putting this together. Steve Gregory, reporter with KFI News in Los Angeles. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. We continue to live in a plastic world and it's all around us. And there's a surge of new plastic that could be on its way. 2020 will be a consequential year for plastic as the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries are pouring billions of dollars into opening new plants with the purpose of making tons of new plastic. Shell is soon going to be opening a new ethane cracking plant that is expected to produce up to 1.6 million tons of plastic annually. For more on this story, we spoke to Beth Gardner, contributor to Yale Environment 360. You're absolutely right that we are we are just absolutely surrounded by plastic in every aspect of, of our modern lives. But it seems to me like so much of the conversation that we have around this issue, the way we talk about it is so skewed towards the sort of, um, you know, personal choice, um, individual behaviors, what can we do to have less plastic in our lives, you know, or kind of how can we recycle more? And it's also, I think, skewed towards the sort of waste aspect where right. all this plastic is ending up. You know, we've all seen the horrible pictures of the the plastic gyres in the ocean and the, you know, fish that eat plastic and birds that choke on it and things like that. But it struck me that we don't hardly ever talk about where all this plastic is coming from. And in fact, just like you said, the plastic is largely produced by big oil and gas companies, the same companies, Exxon, Shell, Chevron, Saudi Aramco, that are driving the climate crisis that we are now facing. They all have what they call petrochemical divisions or subsidiaries. And these are companies that make chemicals and plastic out of derivatives of oil and gas. That's where plastic comes from. And what's happening 
is that some of these companies are starting to look to the future and they're realizing that if the world ever gets serious about dealing with climate change, it's going to mean that we're buying less oil and gas and they are ramping up their production of plastic and other petrochemicals because they see it as a revenue source in a in a future where there may be less demand for their products. Really, we do it to ourselves. The demand for plastic is so high because it really is a versatile product and, you know, it helps in so many ways. But the environmental effects are really something that nobody really thought of were so bad until we're starting to see all of this now. Tell us why 2020 is so consequential because of all these new plants that are opening up. Uh, I know you focus a lot on this uh, shell plant that's going to be opening up pretty soon. So there's a lot in the pipeline right now. And one activist told me that this is really a key year because a lot of these big plastic production plants are sort of in the the permitting process. They're trying to get permission to move forward. And we know that once they do open, you know, those companies will just sort of run them to the max in order to get as much revenue out of them as they can. Um, So there's a huge plant under construction outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, It's a $6 billion facility being built by Shell's petrochemical division. And it's expected to open in the next few years. Pennsylvania gave one of the biggest tax breaks in the state's history to attract that plant. Historically, in the United States, the petrochemical corridor has been along the Gulf Coast down in Texas and Louisiana. So what we're seeing is that the industry is really trying to expand capacity there by by building out their existing facilities and looking for permission to build new ones. And they are also trying to develop a new plastics corridor in the Ohio River Valley, so parts of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia. How are governments reacting to this? Uh, you know, we know it's a problem. We're, we're trying to get it under control. But at the same time, we are in the permitting process of a lot of plants like this. They are trying to grow this stuff and look for other revenue streams for, uh, for all this. So what are we doing? You know, mostly these projects so far are being allowed to go forward. Um, very often, the places where they're trying to cite them are places that are, you know, economically depressed and in, in need of jobs. Um, so there's always a tension there. But I think we tend to think of plastic pollution as being a separate problem from climate change. It's clogging up the oceans and all of that, but it's not necessarily adding to the climate problem that we have. But what I learned in in reporting this story, that Shell Plastics plant near Pittsburgh is going to pump out as much carbon dioxide as 400 and something thousand cars. These ethane cracking plants making all this plastic are incredibly energy intensive. So that means they are incredibly emissions intensive, not just, you know, poisoning the the people who live nearby with all kinds of um, toxic pollutants, but also tremendous amounts of carbon dioxide and other global warming gases. So this is actually really deeply interconnected with the climate crisis. Well, 2020, as we said, is going to be a consequential year for more plastic coming to the planet. Beth Gardner, contributor to Yale Environment 360 and author of Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.